For those of you who are married, you may recall the days of dating, days of engagement, and days of getting married. I remember for Mel and I, it was where we were dating, and then we were engaged. We had our separate apartments, and all of a sudden, as marriage came along, when we were planning to get married, we were going to rent our place from the University of North Dakota, where we attended. It was a married housing. And their housing was, this, they were called the Tin Huts, and sound just like they are. They've been old Air Force military base uh, huts and a slab of concrete, um, had a space heater in the middle of the living room, had a little fan on it that unfortunately drew air from outside to blow across this little flame. North Dakota, when it's 30 degrees below zero, it cannot warm that air up. A little two-bedroom apartment, all that we had and everything. It was an interesting thing, though. As we were dating, as we were engaged, we got the place all ready to go. And then we got married. As we got married, we then moved into our tin hut. There's something that when you get married and all of a sudden you move in together and you start dwelling together, all of a sudden you start seeing that relationship build and grow. But it's not much different than when you're having that first child. That first child comes along, you're so excited and everything, but you go to the hospital. Go to the hospital and that little child is born and no matter what may happen while you're in the hospital, you're just waiting to what? Take the child home. Because you want to bring that child home to dwell in your home with you. That you can have this loving relationship that you build with your child. Have you thought about why God would want to dwell with us? That somehow in the scriptures it identified God wants to dwell with his people. You ever wonder why God would want to do that? What would God's purpose be in dwelling with us? What would he want to accomplish in doing that? Here's what we find out as we look in Exodus chapter 24, starting at verse 15. Now you may pause and say, aren't we in chapter 34 last week? And you're right. And we're not going to start all over again. But what we're doing is to understand what we're talking about now is a series on the tabernacle. We got to go back to when the tabernacle was introduced to Moses. And if you recall the storyline... He was up on the mountain. While he was on the mountain, came the golden calf. When he came off the mountain, he broke the tablets. The people were disciplined, and all of a sudden, he's back up on the mountain again to get the tablets again in order to build the tabernacle. So we're going all the way back to the beginning, why God said there was going to be a tabernacle at all. And as he does this, he's going to talk about God dwelling. And the first place we see God dwelling is on Mount Sinai. And here's what we read. Exodus chapter 24, starting at verse 15. Moses went up on the mountain until a cloud and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. The cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, God called to Moses and said, out of the midst of the cloud... And he said, now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mount in the sight of the people of Israel. And Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So here's what takes place. Moses goes up on the mountain. Six days he's there and he's watching and he sees his cloud there. As the cloud's there, he's aware that somehow God is present. God is dwelling on Mount Sinai. On the seventh day, God speaks and says, I want you to come up into the cloud with me. And now he's going to be face to face with God. 
As he's face to face with God, though, now the glory of the Lord shines in such a way, as it describes here, as a devouring fire. So what? So the children of Israel to see that something's different on the top of the mountain. And God is dwelling on the top of the mountain with Moses. And they're meeting face to face for a conversation. And how long will they be there? He's going to dwell face to face with God for 40 days and 40 nights. And God has a purpose for that. Somehow, what is God's purpose for meeting with Moses and dwelling with him for 40 days and 40 nights? What's he trying to accomplish during that time? And what we're aware of is there's this conversation going on. There's this relationship being built. There's transformation taking place. As Moses finds himself on the mountain with God, dwelling with God there. But God not only dwelt there, God now talks to Moses about dwelling in the tabernacle. And that takes us to chapter 25. Now I want to show you about the tabernacle and give you some background on the tabernacle before we go into the storyline here. So here's a picture of the tabernacle, a rendition of it. And I want you to see is how it has this uh, curtain all the way to the outside. That's to protect the uh, holy place and the holy of holies. And what will happen is you enter the, the uh, tabernacle through the gate that you come through here, and you'll see there's an altar and other things that will take place there. We'll cover that more in detail in the future. But I want you to see here as you come through the gate, the protection is there. There's the, the place where God's going to meet them. There's the holy place, and then the holy of holies. Now, in the holy place is where all of a sudden there's some sacrifices and things made in preparation. But it's the holy of holies where the priest will go in there and the Ark of the Covenant is in the Holy of Holies. In the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant is shown where the angels, the cherubim's wings will touch in the middle and the glory of the Lord resides right in the center there for the nation of Israel. The high priest will come in once a year and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, which is between the angels, the glory is the top of the Ark of the Covenant. And that's for the forgiveness of sins for the nation of Israel and for the high priest himself. So this is the tabernacle. This is what's going to be described and all talked about. We're going to get the description here, starting, and then the golden calf. And then after that story comes the building of the tabernacle, and this is what takes place. Now, when you read in the Old Testament, there's five different words that are used to describe this place. One is the tabernacle. And the root word of that means one who dwells or somebody who resides there. So it's a place that you expect to see God and he's going to reside there. And that's where the glory is going to come and fill the tabernacle at the Ark of the Covenant. Another word that is used, and it's going to be in our text here today, is sanctuary. It's also called a sanctuary. And as a sanctuary, it's going to be identifying it's a holy place that you come to be at. And why is it a holy place? Because that's where God is. That's why it's called the Holy of Holies. And so all of a sudden, this place is also a holy place where God resides. Well, a third term that's used is a tent. It's just called the tent. Now, what does a tent identify? It identifies that it's temporary. And something temporary, it's also portable. We were up on Washington Island this past week. While we were up there, we saw a lot of campsites. Not ours. We were in a cabin. Everybody else was in tents. And you could see that they were temporary. And they were portable. And when it poured down rain, they were very portable. 
And all of a sudden, see, that's what a tent is. It can move with the children of Israel all through the wilderness. That tent could move with them. Well, it's also called a tent of meeting. Now all of a sudden when you get that tent of meeting, now you're bringing together this relationship of God with his people and it's identified as a place of worship. That all of a sudden God comes face to face with his people. And as that takes place, there's worship in that relationship with him. And the final phrase that is used, it's also called a temple or a tent of testimony. And what we'll find later is those tablets that Moses brings down from Mount Sinai They're going to be placed there in the Ark of the Covenant. It's going to be placed there in the Holy of Holies. And when it speaks of the testimony, it now speaks of God's word, God's promises, God's power. So whenever this place is talked about different words, it's encompassing all this relational components that deals with God and who he is. Now, we don't talk a lot about the tabernacle. We don't study it a lot. But it seems that it's an important part of the Old Testament, especially this book. One commentator I was reading, Victor Hamilton, he made this observation. When it comes to the story of the Exodus, it takes two chapters to deal with that. When it comes to the Decalogue, that's the Ten Commandments, two-thirds of a chapter to cover that. To talk about the tabernacle, 13 chapters to talk about the tabernacle. That's one-third of the book of Exodus. Therefore, there's telling us there's something important for us to learn and understand about this tabernacle. So important that God spends 13 chapters for us to see what's going on. To understand what is so important about this place, this tabernacle, this place of meeting, this sanctuary, this tent, this tent of the testimony, What is so important about this place? And we start pulling that together. We start realizing that it's God who's going to dwell with them. So here's what we read in Exodus 25, starting at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel, that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him you shall receive the contribution from for me. I'll take that note, folks. When we talk about giving, that somehow God understands that giving is something that has moved from our hearts. New Testament's called being a cheerful giver, not giving grudgingly, but a cheerful giver. And all of a sudden, that giving is something that comes from our hearts when we contribute to the work of God that he wants to do. And he's saying to build this tabernacle, they're going to make a contribution. Verse 3. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. There'll be gold, silver, and bronze. Then the blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense. Onk stones, and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastplate. That's what's going to be on Aaron the high priest. He talks about all these pieces. You may be saying, where did they get all this money, all this, these things? Keep in mind when they left Egypt, they took all the spoils with them. 
In fact, the Egyptians gave them stuff as they left. And they'd accumulated, in a sense, this wealth of these items that they already are in possession of. Also keep in mind, they're designed for the tabernacle. We've already seen what they made a contribution for with a lot of this stuff before, right? For what? A golden calf of stuff that was designed to build the tabernacle for God. He continues here. Verse 8. And let them make a sanctuary. This is a wonderful phrase. Why? That I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so you shall make it. And God says there's a reason he made the tabernacle. So that God may dwell in their midst. What's going to take place? If God's in the tabernacle dwelling in their midst, what is it going to take place? And what does that demonstrate for them as a people? Let me give you several things. One, it gives them identification. For God to take his presence and bring it all the way down and place it right there among the people. He's identifying himself as these are my people. And there's identification that takes place. And there's a second thing that we find. It identifies as a relationship. That for God to come down and dwell among his people. It's saying that God desires a relationship with his people. Isn't that true when you think about it? Whenever we find ourselves in relationship with other people, don't we find ourselves dwelling closer, spending more time with them, interacting in many ways, maybe conversation, maybe activities together, whatever it may be, though, that we come together and dwell together for the purpose of building relationships. And God is saying he wants to meet with his people. And in doing that, he wants to not only identify, you are my people, but he's also identified, he wants to build a relationship with them. There's a third thing he does. He wants to identify, he wants them to worship him. The whole structure of the tabernacle is designed for his people to come in and meet with him. And in meeting with God, it's not just saying so have a conversation. When you meet with God, it's to fall down on your knees and worship him. And he's saying, the reason I want to meet with you face to face, the reason I want to dwell among you, is I want to be a place where you can come and worship me. Oh, you get the same picture in the New Testament. You go to the book of Revelation. When Jesus is identified, what happens? They fall down and worship him. What happens when they see God the Father? They fall down and worship him. And whenever it comes into the presence of God, when he dwells among us, he wants us to know this is the place of worship. So it's not just identification. It's not just a place of worship. It's also a place of forgiveness. The design of the tabernacle is as the priests and people would come into the court, there were altars there to make sacrifices. Sometimes thank offerings for the good things God has done in our life. But oftentimes sin offering, an offering for sin, a sacrifice with the shedding of blood to assure you the forgiveness of your sin. And what a great truth to understand that God forgives us and the need for forgiveness on a daily basis. And that God wants to dwell among us and that we are provided forgiveness for our sins. And the final one is for guidance. 
You know, there's the testimony that's in there, but it's also keeping in mind how this whole thing works. As God finds himself leading the nation of Israel, as they find themselves wandering in the wilderness, periodically the fire comes up and says it's time to move, and he guides them all through the wilderness of where he wants them to go. So when God meets with his people, his purpose, his purpose is that he can have this transforming relationship And he wants to dwell among us to have this transforming relationship that somehow we, his people, as we come in relationship with him and spend time, we get transformed by spending time with him. And God's anticipation is that we does this so he can build this transforming relationship with him. Now, there's one other thing about the tabernacle that we learn more from the New Testament but we get a feel for it in the Old Testament. When we come to the New Testament, we are going to find that it takes the tabernacle, and we call this typology. It's where it says in the Old Testament, there's something we see here that becomes a type or reflects something about Jesus Christ here. And the tabernacle gives a lot of sense of who Jesus Christ is. It's through a sacrifice, blood, that there's forgiveness of sin. And we come over here and we find through Christ's death on the cross, his blood that atoned for our sins provides forgiveness of sins. We find over here that there's a veil that separates us from God in the Holy of Holies. We found when Christ died on the cross, that veil was torn down. And it gives a similarity. If you go to the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews goes through and he wants to demonstrate a couple things. The first thing he wants to identify is that uh, Jesus Christ is greater than any angel or angelic being you've ever thought of. That's first. But the second thing he wants you to know is that Jesus is greater than Moses. And he tells you that. But the third thing he tells you is that Jesus is greater than the high priest. Why? The high priest had to come in every year making sacrifice, every day making a sacrifice, Day after day after day after day. But when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he died one time and sat down at the right hand of the Father. It was all done. And so it becomes a type of who Christ is going to be. But we start thinking about this transforming, building a relationship that is transforming for us by God dwelling with us. We need to look at the New Testament to see how this is identified too. So this morning, we've got a lot of verses we're going to look at. So I actually put them up on slides. And they're on slides. So for note takers, you can write the verse down. But for the rest of us, we don't have to flip through or however you do it with your digital Bible to go through them. So what we want to look at is the idea, first of all, if God dwelt with the Israelites in the Old Testament... We want to take a quick look at Jesus dwelling in the New Testament. We find that in John chapter 1, verse 14. So if you want to turn there, you can. But we have it here on screen, and here's what we read. And the word, that speaks of Jesus Christ, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The whole picture here is that Jesus Christ came and dwelt among us the disciples and all the people in New Testament times. 
That word dwelt, some suggest, can also be translated to tabernacle. And so as Jesus, as we have in the Old Testament, there's this tabernacle. Now what we find is Jesus Christ came and he tabernacled. What did he do? He wandered around with his disciples. And with his disciples, he was building a relationship with them. And as we read through the New Testament, we find Jesus Christ constantly building this relationship with his disciples and his followers. And what we find in that at times, they do worship him. We find at times they become identified with him. Hi, they are my disciples, Jesus calls them. We find at times he guides them and directs them and gives them instructions of where to go. We find that Jesus Christ functions in the same way that God in the Old Testament with the Israelites did, of how he functioned in that relationship with them. Jesus Christ does the same thing with his disciples. And as he builds that relationship, as he dwells with them, is to bring that transforming relationship into play. And that all of a sudden we find that Jesus Christ came as he dwelt with his disciples. It was to build a a transforming relationship during that time. And Christ did exactly what God the Father did in the Old Testament with the Israelites. As they moved around and traveled, they saw this transforming work. But there's something Jesus did also. Jesus also understood that he was not going to be staying on the earth. And something was going to change. So all of a sudden he starts giving his promises of what that dwelling would look like in the future. And that dwelling is going to be the thing that impacts us today. See, we were not in the Old Testament with the Israelites where God was wandering in the wilderness. We can learn about it, but we weren't there. We were not there in New Testament times when Jesus was walking around the earth, dwelling there and seeing the transforming relationship take place. We live after Jesus died and rose again and are sitting at the right hand of the Father. So what happens to us when it comes to the indwelling or the dwelling of God with us? So Jesus gives some promises about the Holy Spirit. So here's what we read about the Holy Spirit. First of all, it's John 14, verses 16 and 17. Now, John 14 begins what's called the Upper Room Discourse. Chapter 13 begins it. 13 to 17. Final words Jesus has with his disciples. They're going to celebrate communion there. These are his words. And this conversation starts taking place, and Jesus says this. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. That means one just like Jesus Christ. Their concern is he's going to leave. What's going to happen? How are we going to live if you're not here? Haven't you always thought it would be better if Jesus were here? Haven't you? I have. I wish Jesus was sitting right next to me. Only problem is Jesus is limited by his incarnation body. He could be here, but he wouldn't be with you. But he'd be with me. He can't do that. He said, what's going to happen? He's got something else in, in mind here. Somehow he's got something in mind that there's another helper just like him. That other helper is to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. He's saying, listen, we've got this Holy Spirit that's going to come. This Holy Spirit is going to come to each and every one of us. This Holy Spirit's not only going to be with us, this Holy Spirit is going to dwell in us. So that each and every one of us have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. That's the promise he's making. He gives another promise in John 14. Here's his next one he makes. 
And this is verses 25 and 26. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Remember God in the Old Testament? Part of the reason he was there dwelling with them became the testimony, the word, the promises. The Holy Spirit's going to do the same thing for us. This indwelling of the Holy Spirit has the capacity to teach each and every one of us what Jesus has taught, what the scriptures say, how we can be transformed. And now the dwelling is shifting from a dwelling around us to an indwelling within us. Here's a third promise he makes about the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority. Whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you in John 16, 13, and 14. Now the Spirit of God is going to guide us. Same thing that God did in the Old Testament when the fire and the cloud moved and all of a sudden started moving ahead of the Israelites. They said, it's time to go. And they started walking with God through the wilderness. This is telling us that the word, the Spirit of God, Jesus saying, who will indwell us, will have the ability to guide us into truth and understanding on how to live. Don't you find yourself at times trying to make decisions on what to do? Direction in your life? Do you buy this house or not? Do you change jobs? Do you find yourself in relationships and things you're trying to determine the will of God for your life? To realize the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, will indwell each and every one of us and guide us into his truth to make wise and good decisions. And that's his promise. So Jesus makes those promises. We get to Acts chapter 1. And Jesus comes on the mountain. He goes to Mount of Olives. He stands with his disciples. He ascends to heaven. But before he ascends, he tells his disciples to stay here. And the Holy Spirit will come upon them. And they will receive power. And they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and the remotest parts of the earth. And he gives them a promise again. And he leaves. Acts chapter 2. All of a sudden the apostles find themselves in a room. Not sure what was going on. All of a sudden Holy Spirit comes upon them. Fills and baptizes them with the Spirit. And everything changes at that moment. And as all that takes place in the book of Acts, we then come to the New Testament. All of a sudden we get verses that teach us what actually happened after Jesus was raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of the Father. What happened with the Holy Spirit? Here's a teaching we find now about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. 1 John 4.13 says this. By this we know that we abide in him, that's Christ, And Christ in us, why? Because Christ has given us the Spirit. I want you to think now. When you trusted in Jesus Christ, your personal Savior, 
There's a lot of things that happened the day you trusted in Christ. Lewis Berry Chafer identified 33 things, 33 things that happened the moment you trusted in Christ. But one of them is that you were indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You were indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That's exactly what this passage says. That the time you came to Christ, he gave us the Holy Spirit at that time. And the Spirit of God indwells each and every one of us as followers of Jesus Christ. That moment you believed, your life was transformed. You became a new creature in Christ. And something dramatically changed. No longer was there something out here you're trying to achieve on your own. Now all of a sudden, within each and every one of us, the Holy Spirit empowers us, works within us to transform us, to make things different. And it's not just us trying. It's the word, the Holy Spirit empowering us to live for Christ. Now here's another verse. Romans 8, verses 9 to 11. This one becomes important because this identifies the difference of a believer and an unbeliever. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if... In fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. So he's making a distinction. Unbelievers live in the flesh. They do not have the Spirit of God in them. However, if you've trusted in Christ, the Spirit of God dwells within you. If he doesn't, then you're not a follower of Christ. And you're over here living in the flesh and do not know Christ. And the distinction between a believer and an unbeliever is that you're indwelt by the Spirit of God. It happens the moment you believe. It continues in the verse. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. This is telling us each and every believer has the Holy Spirit. It's not something you have to pray for. It's not something you hope happens. It's not some events that are going to take place in the future. This is telling us that if we know Christ, we are indwelt. We have the Holy Spirit right now. And that Spirit is the evidence. The evidence that you're a follower of Christ. That's your evidence that you've trusted in Christ. That's the evidence you're a new creature in Christ. That life has changed for you. And you're something different. Many of us, when we recall our conversion... Don't you recall when you go back and look that somehow you saw things started changing in your life? Uh, Maybe it's the way you talked. Maybe some things you did. Maybe some relationships you had. But but you saw it. You you, you saw some changes in your life. And in reality, it wasn't because you sat around grunting out, change. That's not how it happened. Somehow you were just as surprised then all of a sudden, you weren't swearing like you used to swear. Um, you found some new words in your vocabulary. Huh, I didn't know this existed. How did it change? Because you concentrate. Somehow the, you, you look back and you go, Boy, I, I was changed. The, the spirits are working. He's within me and doing something different. Because you came to Christ. And other people saw it too. They start seeing changes in your life. Not because you were trying, but because the Spirit was working, showing you that you were a child of God. 
that you're saved by your faith in Christ and now you're being transformed by the spirit who dwells within you. Let's look at another verse. Deals with the indwelling. Galatians 4, 6, and 7. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. Crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. What great promises we have, folks. Look at what we have because we're indwelt by the spirit. We're sons and daughters of the king. He identifies that we're heirs of all that he has. Nothing we have to strive for. Here it is, you're an heir. This whole idea when that will is read, it tells everybody who, what they get because they are heirs of your estate. And God wants you to know that you're an heir of everything he promises. You don't have to strive for it, you don't have to work for it. We are sons and daughters of the king because he indwells us with his spirit And as he says here, the spirit who's in our hearts to work, to change and transform us to become like Christ. Let's look at another verse. This is out of 1 Timothy 1, verses 13 and 14. Sort of a concluding thing, but saying this. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. This is Paul writing to a young pastor And he says to me, in the faith and love that you are in Christ Jesus, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted you. It's just identifying for us the power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. Here's what I want you to understand. That the Holy Spirit wants to build a relationship with you with a transforming power Of Jesus Christ. That you have within you the Holy Spirit to transform and change your life. The Christian life is not us trying to do something as much as the Holy Spirit transforming us. And it's us understanding out of our flesh we will not accomplish that. But out of the Spirit we will be changed. There is the fruit of the Spirit. And there's the deeds of the flesh. And that spirit, that spirit is here to change our lives. And we need to know the power of that in us. God has determined to indwell each and every one of us with the Holy Spirit that transforms us to be like Christ. The unfortunate thing about that is we're without excuse. How often we'd like to say, you know, I do that, but you don't understand. I grew up in a home like this. And if you're from my dysfunctional family, you'd be like this too. So, whoa, 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 whoa. The Holy Spirit is there to do what? Transform us to be the men and women, the children that we were not going to be out of our flesh, but he changes us. Folks, there's hope for each and every one of us to be like Christ. And we are without excuse. We are without excuse. We are not seeing that change in our life. When we blame it on our personality, our upbringing, whatever it may be, as followers of Jesus Christ, 
That's denying the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit in our lives. We're denying what it says the indwelling Spirit will do. That it will transform us to be like Jesus Christ. We start thinking about this. Start to understand how God looks at us. Why is it that God can expect us to forsake sin? It's because the Holy Spirit indwells us. I want you to think about the sins that you do. Oh, those reoccurring ones that we all have. And we say, ah, I just can't change. Oh, well, God said, wait a second. He expects us to be able to forsake sin. Not because of our power. Not because of the way we think. But because of the indwelling work of the Spirit. Why do you think God expects us to live righteously? Why do you think he expects us to do the right thing? Why does he expect us not to lie and cheat? Why does he expect us to be honest? Because we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He just expects us to live righteously. Why? Because we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Isn't that what the Spirit would do? When Jesus, when God looks at us, why can he expect us to be obedient to his word? I'm not saying it's easy to be obedient. But why do you think God can expect us to be obedient? Why do you think he can expect husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church? And to nurture them. Why do you think he can expect that of us men? It's because we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Why does he expect women to be those who can train other women? To take the younger women and train them up? Why does he expect that? Because they're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Why does he expect each and every one of us to use our spiritual gift to build up the body of Christ? It's because we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Why does he expect us to share the gospel with people out there who desperately need a savior? It's because we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Why do you think God expects us to be obedient to his word? Because our flesh can accomplish it? No. It's because we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. God expects his relationship to us. He wants to dwell with us to transform us that we're like Christ. And to capture that and make it happen for us, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Think through your life, folks. Sin that we may have, relationships that are broken, sins of disobedience that we have, things that should change, hopelessness we sense at times in our walk with Christ. And we have all of our excuses. And God stands and says, so why can I expect you to obey? Why can I expect you to not sin? Why can I expect you to live righteously? Because you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. What a great truth for us, folks. 
What a transforming truth to understand that the day you trusted in Jesus Christ, you were a new creature in Christ, indwelt with the Holy Spirit to transform how we think, who resides in our heart to change it. So all of a sudden, the attitudes we have, the thoughts that we have, are being transformed to be in likeness with Christ, in agreement with his word, because why? We're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. God desires to dwell with his people, to build a transforming relationship with them. And God, through his Holy Spirit, is building a transforming relationship with us. Because why? We're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Let's close in prayer. Lord, how good you are to us. How powerful your word is to us. How wonderful your truth is for us as well. To know that we're indwelt by your Spirit. Our Lord, for all of us in this room, we all wrestle with different things. We all wrestle with sin. We know we're not perfect. We all wrestle with obedience. We're not always righteous. Lord, there's things that need to be changed in our lives. There's things in our flesh that we enjoy but need to be transformed. There's times when the fruit of spirit should be evidence, but they see the deeds of our flesh. It's times when we give in to selfishness and our old way of life instead of trusting you with the transforming work of your spirit. Lord, we give you thanks. We give you great thanks for the indwelling of your spirit who has the capacity to conform us, to change us, to transform us, to be like Christ. And we find ourselves submitting our hearts to you today and our minds to be like Christ through your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.